This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Fiona Patton, MLC. Fiona is an elected member of the Legislative Council in the Victorian Parliament. She is the founder of Reason Party, formerly known as the Sex Party, and she joined me to talk about her new book, Sex, Drugs and the Electoral Role. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM in Melbourne. This is Amy Mullins and uh, I have my next guest in the studio with me. She is Fiona Patton, MLC. Uh, Fiona was elected to the Upper House, the Legislative Council of um, the Victorian Parliament and Fiona has a long involvement in political issues and advocacy and she's written a memoir called Sex, Drugs and the Electoral role and it's out through Alan and Unwin and uh, Fiona joins me now. Hi there. Hi Amy. Hi. I was really um, excited to see your book because (laughs) I thought, great, a political memoir I actually want to read (laughs) that isn't, you know, self-congratulatory and all about, you know, the wonderful things they, they have done and, you know, a little bit of the inner workings, Mm. the playing the game of politics that people so like to hear, all the gossip Yes, there is a little bit, but it's very illuminating of Australian politics, Mm. state and federal, the kind of things that go on behind the scenes that most of the general public would have absolutely no idea of the extent of. No, I think that I think that's right. I think people people see what what people see of politicians and sadly it's not actually a very good image but you see these sort of like two animals rutting and that's question time mm. um but yes there there is a lot more to the parliamentary process than that exactly yeah and there is quite a lot of um consensus on some issues mm. it, it is really interesting uh, that i saw a tweet the other day from a press gallery journalist who was in the Victorian Parliament and was saying that they could not hear um, the shadow minister for women who was a national, mm. I think her name was Emma. Emma Keeley. Yes. They could not hear what she was saying above the shouting that was going on at her. Well, and possibly from her own party. Yeah. You know, there will be people... that. I, I learned very early on that question time is not answer time mm. and that's really important to recognise that because then then the whole um, drama and, you know, that that is question time actually makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that is very true. Um, I want to get into your election to mm. Parliament. You are one of the many politicians who had many goes at it. Um, yeah. It's really a bit of a misnomer that people just get elected the first time. Not many people are that lucky. I Yeah, I don't think there's anyone who's quite that lucky. I, I know that it... Yeah, I mean, it, I think it was... A, we had a fairly fast track. We, we formed the party in 2009. Mm. And you are the founder and leader of that party. So, yeah. you know, let's not shy away from the fact that you're responsible for it. That, that's right. I take complete responsibility <laughs> or blame for it. Yeah, it um, was but, called the Sex Party. So people yes. may remember that when they were voting in previous years. Yeah. And it's now the Reason Party. That's right. So hopefully that doesn't work against us. But, <laughs> but hopefully we, we are... 
um, proving that we can bring a bit of reason uh, to Parliament. But yet, you know, it's it does take people quite a long time. And, um, you know, and I think we kind of fast-tracked because we started in 2009 and were elected by 2014. And that's that's probably a faster uh, route than I think even the Greens took longer to yeah. get to get MPs up with, with Bob Brown being the first... Um, who's a hero of mine as totally. well. Totally. <laughs> I'm on that train. No, yes. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting because it does take a lot for uh, a party to gain mm. awareness in the voting public to have quality candidates that you can rely That's on. Right. And we've seen that with some of the One Nation candidates, for example, mm. who, you know, the vetting process is not that thorough. Um, <laughs> and, and we've seen some other really interesting additions mm. to the federal Senate, like Jackie Lambie, yep. who, you know, certainly um, did add a different dimension to the yeah. parliament and so I think made a contribution in some areas that perhaps people, you know, don't remember because all they remember is, you know, the controversial moments. But mm. you have, I mean, d- done a lot in your time, not only as a parliamentarian, yeah. but previous to that, um, you know, your whole life is fascinating. <laughs> and I think your mum is like a legend. Yeah. What an amazing woman. Mm. Every single time you played up, you know, as a teenager or a young person in this book, your mum's response was just golden and so switched on and... Yeah, yeah. Look, she she certainly had a doctorate in reverse psychology um, and, you know, she just... I think she also had this ability to nip things in the bud Mm. um, and while she was... She had, you know, she was a fairly conservative person, she didn't let that affect how she responded to the wide range of issues that that she had to respond to. Yeah. Yeah, there are there are a range. I'm not going to give it away because yeah. I think people should read it for themselves, but it, it did remind me that you said that uh your mother's way of um connecting with people, you know, because you moved a lot around, mm, moved mm. around a lot during your childhood and yeah. you'd be in a new country or a new state and would need to, you know, build new connections, friendships, mm. and that her way of connecting with people was something that was useful to you coming in as an outsider, really, in Parliament. You weren't, you know, from a faction of a traditional no. party. What was it, the experience for you coming from a position of not being a, a, politi- a career politician, someone who actually had a life before yeah. politics that was <laughs> fascinating and, yeah. and also, you know, really different and varied? It's, it, it's such an interesting question and um, I, I have found Parliament one of the more difficult places to find my place, even though I've loved every second of it. And, you know, as my mum would have insisted upon, I've got involved in everything. You know, I've got involved in lots of friendship groups, um, lots of, I've been involved in a lot of committee work. Mm. Um, you know, I'm an acting president. I've, you know, as my mum would have made us do, you know, you pick three sports and a, and a craft <laughs> and, you know, that's how you make friends. Yeah. And that that's exactly right. She would... There was no thought in our head that we wouldn't make friends wherever we went, that that was just what she instilled in us. Mm. But when you go to Parliament, it's this really interesting thing, like are they friends or do they want my vote or do they just have to be nice to me because I hold a balance of power and I can stop a piece of legislation or ensure it's it's passing. Mm. 
So it's this very, it's the first time in my life that I've actually kind of had difficulty judging judging relationships. Now, you know, I'm, I'm an optimistic person, so I like to think that, you think know. Think the best in people. Th- think, yeah, well, and that they, <laughs> you know, aren't just being nice. But, yeah. um, but it, it, it's... It, it does give you that interesting self-doubt and it's probably, um, yeah, the first time. And I suspect that's for everyone. Like I remember mm-hmm. someone saying to me from a major party that it's not the people in front across the aisle that they worry about, it's the people behind them that they worry about. Yeah. So I think that that kind of viciousness of, of party politics mm. um, creates quite an unstable relationship, rela- unstable relationships. Yeah, and we've seen that play out at the federal level mm. you know, in the number of leadership spills we've seen I know. is phenomenal. Yeah. But a lot of that really seemed to do with either ideology, extreme ideology and matters of opinion or difference mm. and also around personality and whether, you know, someone was liked or not. Yeah, and let's not forget self-interest. Yes, you know? the probably overriding yeah. motivation really. That's right, you know, uh, you know, I back, I back my leader until I don't is basically... Yeah, until later that day or the next day. That's right, that's mm. right. Well, that, that's exactly... So I... I I think this is, it is incredibly unhelpful. It is, you know, I, I don't know how we fix this. And, and I, I think, you know, political parties really need to consider, um, how they create some stability because, you know, you know, you talk, I, I was listening to someone from Tony Burke, I think it was from the mm. opposition. So what are you guys going to do today? They're going to beat the opposition, um, all week about party politics. Mm-hmm. And then the the opposition is going to beat them about party politics. We're not going to talk about policy. We're not going to talk about people. Uh, you know, there may be some attempts to get some legislation through, but yeah. largely they are going to talk about themselves mm. for the entire week, which which they're getting paid for. Which they're getting paid for, and mm. I don't I don't think it is healthy, <laughs> you know, to be so obsessed with yourself um, or your own your own level of importance mm. when you're not obsessing about the people that you're there to represent. Exactly. And it reminds me of the fact that when we had that spill, there was legislation to be brought before the House Mm. about whether um, a perpetrator of domestic violence could cross-examine the victim in person in court. And and that was something to be discussed. It's still to be discussed this week, as well as live exports and that kind of thing. And, you know, you write in your book, particularly at the federal level, mm. very little socially progressive policy has actually passed the parliament yeah. except the marriage equality mm. outcome. That's right. And and I think, you know, we're with with our new prime minister, who again is um, actively and fervently religious, and this is the third out of five prime ministers mm. that has that is very actively religious, where you look at the general population in the last census found that less than nine percent of us would call ourselves actively religious, and that would be going to church more than going to church or a mosque more than once a month. Um, it's yet, a low bar. <laughs> that's right, and yet twenty five percent of our politicians do a daily prayer morning. Mm. Um, so I think. Our, our our politicians are not actually in line with the people that they represent, and that's why we don't see socially pro- 
uh, we don't see policy that is backed by the people go through. Mm. Uh, you know, seeing the voluntary the debate about whether the ACT and the Northern Territory could have a debate about voluntary assisted dying that 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 bill was lost or that even that motion was lost in in the Senate and even though they said it was a conscience vote I suspect that there was a lot of pressure not mm. to support it from that very strong uh, religious element. And it has been strong for quite a while, even at the state level. I mean, mm. there are, you say at the beginning of your book that uh, parts or branches of the Victorian Liberal Party have been taken over by religious yeah. types, those who would have maybe partaken in family first politics That's right. when they were alive. And also um, the Labor Party has a history of having a strong Catholic right, mm-hmm. pro-life mm-hmm. Um, people, particularly the SDA yeah. union, um, which I think has wavered a little in their influence nowadays, but was very, very strongly influential yeah. uh, in the point that that's why Labor really had didn't support marriage equality for so long. That, that's exactly right, and I think those. Um, and I think this is also what um, is why having member independents or parties like Reason can be effective because we can mm-hmm. be a lot more nimble and a lot more agile. So, you know, trying to get a supervised injecting centre or even safe access zones around abortion clinics, even though everyone thinks it's the right thing to do, to get that through the caucus would have been really difficult. And there would have been people in the caucus who said, why would we want to raise the abortion debate again? Um, You know, why would we want to raise, even mention that word (laughs) again? So, you know, those big bayer mouths of of parties, their, their sheer size... It makes them, you know, so difficult to move. And, you know, as we saw on marriage equality, you know, the the whole of the community had moved on before either Labor or Liberal could could move on. Exactly. And I think some of the issues that your party in the past and currently has mm. been vocal on are very progressive, you know, civil liberty type issues. Yeah. Um, th- there is a whole range of them, but I know a lot of it, stems from your experience, like Mm. professionally and personally. Why did you set up the sex party and and why was, I guess, the focus on those key issues that most of the parties don't consider their core focus? Yes, and isn't it interesting um, that as as it turned out, they became their core focus. So, I mean, I think... Look, to be quite honest, we set the party up out of frustration... Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure that that is a good reason to do anything. However, I'm very pleased that we did do it. So it was frustration that we could see the community was moving in one direction on social issues and our parliaments were either not moving or were moving in the opposite direction. And so when we went to the first election, it was on marriage equality. It was on a royal commission into religious institutions and, and child sex abuse. Mm. Um, it was on internet censorship. And I know it's kind of curious these days, but it was also on the ability for adults to have access to adult computer games. And, you know, oddly, this was a big issue for, for some MP, for federal parliament at the time, that yeah. that we wouldn't allow adult computer games. And it So those were the first four things that we went 
to the election and, and also around sex education, gender equality, um, assisted dying. And, and it's interesting to see so many of those initial policies and campaigns that we took almost not to be elected but to prove that people would vote for mm. those vote on those issues. So I people would call a single issue. I don't think we were single issue, but people actually voted on those issues. Yeah, it really makes me think that perhaps you're a circuit breaker in some regard. Mm. Not only do you have the balance of power, but you're disrupting the yes. current way that things are do, are being done yeah. around social issues. And I think you know we need the the major parties need to consider this. And we you know the Wagga Wagga by election is another excellent example mm. of the fact that the community has really lost faith in in the major parties. Uh, so that, that that independent voice in there, and, and you look at the upper house in Victoria, there's eight political parties represented there and at least three of them are needed to pass legislation mm. um, or to actually... Yeah, three if the Shooters and the Greens supported the same thing, which is unlikely. <laughs> How often does that, that happen? Not, <laughs> not terribly often. In fact, I think the only time they supported it was when um, uh, the late, when the Greens uh, vote with the Liberals. Um, they'll generally find that the Shooters are voting with them as well. Really? Okay. Yeah, so that makes a very odd troika. Yeah. Um, but uh, that, that, it don't, that doesn't happen often. No, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it does, though, point to maybe the value of having parliaments where there is the government is in the minority and yeah. can't just, you know, ram through everything that is in their election platform. Exactly. And while I hope that I've been able to um, put forward my arguments arguments eloquently and, and, and persuasively, I also know that that the fact that my vote is important to the government in a, does give me a step up in, in arguing whether it was for an inquiry into assisted dying or supervised injecting centre or, mm. you know, safe access zones. It, I do get that, that step up with that and I, and I hopefully I use that not in a horse trading way but in a responsible way. But, yes, you know, without that, um, the government of the day wouldn't take on those issues because they don't have to. Mm. Um, and and also, as I said before, because it would be very hard for them to get that consensus within their caucus on on those issues. Yes. And, I mean, you have introduced private members' bills, mm. particularly I'm thinking of the one around uh, abortion clinics. Yes. Preventing people protesting and intimidating women yeah. who come to those clinics to get yes. a safe abortion. Mm. Is that would you consider that in your in terms of your current parliamentary career was that a really important thing for you to achieve you know given that it wasn't uh, I guess initiated by the other parties yes it was really important and and I think it was it was also like it was quite a step up for us you know we um you know we it was it was in our you know first half of our first year and. I think it was somewhat that that optimistic naivety that's like, well, we'll just write a bill, won't we? <laughs> you know, that's that's what we do. Yeah. Now, I mean, of course, when that bill went up, the the government wouldn't accept my bill, 
but they did make a commitment to introduce the le- legislation themselves. Mm. And and I made sure that the health minister stood on the steps next to me with the cameras going and made that commitment. So, and I did that. We, we did that with Uber as well. And we um, also did it with the Safe Injecting Centre. Mm. Um and Which I believe has been very successful so far, hasn't it's it? It's been hugely successful. And, yeah. I, you know, so I think the safe access zones was a really wonderful thing to do and so many of us have had personal experience with that harassment, um, uh, uh, with that harassment. But the Safe Injecting Centre... Is, save, is actually saving lives. Yes. Like it's actually saving lives and it's actually showing one of our most um, disengaged and poorest part of our community that someone cares for them. Mm. You know, like I, I don't know if many of the listeners know, but there is now a volunteer dentist in the supervised injecting centre, which, you know, these are people who are largely homeless who would never have had any um, dental health care for years and just it's those sorts of things that I think are incredibly important and incredibly helpful to put people back on a a path to recovery. Mm. And it's a small thing for Parliament to do but it has a massive impact. Yeah. The funding and in terms of I I think the political will surely would be behind an issue like that where people don't want to have... Um, drug users on the street, potentially overdosing yep. alone, yep. Um, you know, not having a place to put their needles. That's right. That's right. And and you've cert- and you certainly feel it there. There is a. I was out. I've, I mean, I go out there most weeks um, because Richmond's in my electorate. But yep. there is a level of calm. Look, it's not perfect, and it hasn't fixed everything, and and mm. it won't. But it's already bursting at the seams. It's already, um, you know, it, it already needs to be enlarged. So it has been, it has been endorsed by the cohort that we were trying to get. This is a cohort that is so hard to access for for health, mm. um, but now we're giving them a door into mental health treatment. We're giving them a door into treatment you know addiction treatment we're giving them a door into dental health like it's a yeah it's just um i think this is a, a wonderful thing and 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 i hope that we will be able to see more of these in other parts of of melbourne um where the community wants it and where it's needed mm. now you are a, a upper house member which is quite different in mm. some regards in terms of the size of your electorate <laughs> and who you the people you're representing mm. I mean, you're uh, representing the northern metropolitan district which is a huge span of suburbs when i looked it up on the vec website Mm. how do you engage with your constituents given that you're not only um from a a different party not the major parties but you're also one of a few who are representing that particular area that that's right so i it the northern metropolitan area encompasses 500,000 voters and about 500 square kilometres and it's 11 lower house seats. So, and the vast majority of those are held by Labor and the ones that aren't are held by the Greens. So they they sort of have that lower house representation where, yeah, it's just me to represent those 500,000. 
I go to the opening of an envelope. Um, <laughs> I, I try and get out and about everywhere in my community as much as I can. I try and connect with with different with different groups, um, and and I love doing that. So yeah. I really enjoy. You know, I was at a a, a launch of a disability. Uh, platform then I was also at a say no to violence group and yeah I get to meet a diverse range of people which like you Amy I mean it's it's one of the wonderful privileges of the work that we do. I think that's a great word it really is a huge privilege to meet people in the community you know passionate about a particular issue or topic to them and to learn and absorb their life experiences into yours so that you hopefully are better informed when you're looking at legislation that comes across your desk. Exactly. And it's I know that um, everyone from Pauline Hanson through to Tony Abbott has said it, but, you know, it's actually really important to listen and to go out and listen to people and meet meet different organizations and you and it's and it is so wonderful do it when you do that you mm. know what you learn and um and and where you see the gaps that government could could assist in but also where you see that where government shouldn't be involved in um and just letting communities give it, give communities the tools to support themselves and and also enable small businesses to to play their role in our community in a, a more meaningful way yeah that's a really great point and Fiona I would like to raise something which I think is important mm-hmm. um, because you're a woman of many firsts <laughs> because you're a woman, yes. because you were born a woman. Um, and, you know, you you are like the first woman to create or found her own party um, to then be subsequently elected under that party. Yes. And uh, you, wrote, you said in your um, maiden speech, <laughs> I really, really liked this, what you said. You said, I may be the first former sex worker elected to a parliament anywhere in this country. However, I am sure that the clients of sex workers have been elected in far greater numbers before me. I know. It was... It, 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 I love hearing it because it just brings me back. Yeah. Because I was so nervous giving that inaugural speech and it's because it's... You can't speak in parliament until you've given your inaugural speech. So it's the first time you actually speak mm. in parliament. And I was so nervous doing it. But just... it. It was almost like the room went naked at that time. Like the number of people who started like scratching and looking at their feet and getting, you know, kind of shuffling. And um, yeah, one of the the, um, attendants at the house afterwards said, Fiona, that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen in an an inaugural speech, just the reaction of the room. Yeah, exactly. And you do raise the fact that... uh, that it's a huge proportion of men, mostly men, mm. who, you know, will attend um, a, a brothel or engage with a yeah. an individual who is offering sex mm. as a work. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's something that perhaps, you know, because it's not visible in mm. many ways, it's you know, constantly under the surface there. And it's something which you t- you write about in your book often is that you've been an advocate for sex workers and yep. people in the industry in a range of, you know, particular fields, mm. um, you know, in print form, in video form, yeah. um, 
and and that is obviously a really important area to have an advocate who is looking after someone's welfare mm. and health because you know there are other types of workplace occupational yeah. risks in you know that yeah. particular profession as well in terms of your your life experience has that do you think added to your ability to be a successful parliamentarian um probably more than you know the other work that I did like being a waitress although I don't think so I mean I think it's about um relationships with people and interacting with people now certainly in sex work there is an increased level of intimacy in that interaction um because you're nude mm-hmm. uh, and there and also you know I think it's in, in my opinion when in in sex work quite often because money changes hand a lot of ego is left at the door and yeah. so this is um you know this becomes quite a a, a a transparent and 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 truthful relationship between two people mm. even though they might have only known each other for five minutes um i you know i i think also we we still as a society have trouble talking about sex and you know with the advent of technology and where we're going and with you know with the increasing isolation of people that are not experiencing that intimacy whether you're a person with a disability or you're a person who no longer has a partner or doesn't have a partner um our ability to find that intimacy in a relationship i think is important and it's something that we need to speak about Mm. and sex needs to be spoken about you know it's it's I, i one interviewer on a you know, sort of mainstream radio station was shocked at how much sex I put in the book. And I like, did hear that interview. Yeah, I know, did you? I yeah. was, I was like, oh, how salacious is this book? I know, and it's not. It's not. No, it he, really isn't. He, like, he really, yeah. Sorry, listeners. I mean, there's a bit of salaciousness, but, but it's it, yeah. quite prudish. I think his reaction. It was, and it's. You know, and, and certainly, look, you know, I mean, the less we know about Barnaby Joyce's sex life, the better, yes. probably. But I do think it's important that we are open and have conversations about sex. And, you know, that deals into sex and relationship education for children. You know, if we want our children to be safe, then we have to give them the words for that. Mm. We have to give them the understanding of what's good and what's not good. And, you know, and when we're dealing with consent and the increasing concerns around sexual violence in our society, you know, the recognition of it, that we, we have to we have to educate our young men and we have to educate our young women. And I think, it, you know, I think sex and relationship education should be compulsory across every school and it should not just be about how to spell fallopian tube, which <laughs> is what I got in my sex ed. Really? It should be about relationships. It should be about pleasure. Mm. And... You know, frankly, for for a lot of us, sex is sex is fun. Yes. Well, I remember my high school. That was education on sex education, and it was here is a range of STIs under a microscope, <laughs> zoomed in by a million times, so you can see just how horrific this thing looks. Don't have sex, kids. Yeah. See you later. And um, and I was like, oh gosh, sex must be pretty bad mm. if that's what the outcome is. That's right. Um, <laughs> which is really <laughs> disturbing that I think about it now. But yeah. you say, you know, we should have sex education much earlier. We should also be openly talking about sex as adults. That's right. 
I just think it's yep. something that is constantly avoided, even you know between family members or siblings, or you know people start going, "Oh, I don't want to imagine this happening." That's you know, right. I have a aversion to yep. thinking of intimacy. Um, it does represent such a critical part of human fulfillment and relationships. Exactly. I mean, it's really the reason we breathe. You know, from a, from an evolutional yes. perspective, we are here to procreate, and we eat and breathe and drink to procreate. Mm. So it is a fundamental part of our being and I think we should we should acknowledge that. And and then that goes into, you know, when I, I kind of, you know, areas that I'm interested in now, which is around our ageing community, you know, um, and I'm interested in loneliness and isolation and all of those things and the fact that having a double bed in a nursing home is radical, you know, which is crazy. That is you know, crazy. The yeah. fact that, you know, my friend Janice, who I write about in the book, yes. who has cerebral palsy and she's not allowed to close the door of her bedroom. Mm. She's a 50-year-old woman, you know. So, yeah, I think we've, as as your school did, let's be scared of sex. Yeah. But also this kind of notion that just say no is, is an effective way of... Um, ensuring yeah, negotiating uh, negotiating and ensuring mm. safety mm. you know we, we're doing the same with drugs you know just say no yep. and that frankly is not working yeah Fiona I wish we could talk for another <laughs> hour because there's so much I wanted to cover but I really want people to read your book and also head along to the event that you're at in Readings Carlton yes which I think is tomorrow night isn't it it is tomorrow at 6 30 yeah and it's free it's free yeah um, I'm not sure whether there are many places left, which is frightening. Because I think, just to, you know, finishing, one of the weirdest things about this was when I wrote the book, it, it, the fact that people would read it was a very abstract um, yeah, idea. Yeah. And now, you know, <laughs> now I'm realising that... People are quoting it back to you. That's right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, know, I was thinking that. I'm like, it must be pretty disturbing yeah. to... It is probably more an intimate process You're just with yourself. That's right. And and certainly Robbie, my partner, mm. um, you know, has... This is, this is a love story. I mean, this is our story as yeah. well. So he was intimately involved in this as well. You know, he's a great editor. And so, you know, he was part of this journey of this last couple couple of years so yeah so you know it's kind of like right well we've done that and <laughs> I didn't kind of think about because this is the first time we've ever done anything yeah. like this I didn't really think about the fact that people yeah obviously the are gonna, they're, yeah, they're gonna, <laughs> it's a book yeah, yeah. people are supposed to read it and Fiona. it'll have quite a long life <laughs> yeah I hope so yeah thank you so much Fiona Thanks, for coming Amy. in it was really wonderful chatting with yeah, you yeah likewise this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.